Section 33 of The Book of the Bush. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Magdalena Cook. The Book of the Bush by George Dunderdale. Section 33. A New Rush. And there was gathering in hot haste. When gold was first discovered, the stockyard creek, Griffiths, one of the prospectors, came to me with the intentions of registering the claim, under the impression that I was mining registrar. He showed me a very good sample of gold. As I had not been appointed registrar, he had to travel sixty miles further before he could comply with the necessary legal formalities. Then the rush began. Old diggers came from all parts of Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland and New Zealand. Also men who had never dug before, and many who did not intend to dig. Pickpockets, horse thieves and jumpers. The prospectors' claim proved the richest, and the jumpers and the lawyers paid particular attention to it. The trail of the old serpent is over everything. The desire of the jumpers was to obtain possession of the rich claim, or some part of it. And the lawyers longed for costs, and they got them. The prospectors paid, and it was a long time before they could extricate their claim from the clutches of the law. They found the gold field, and they also soon found an unprofitable crop of lawsuits growing on it. They were called upon to show course before the warden and the court of mines why they should not be deprived of the fruit of their labours. The fact of their having discovered gold, and of having pegged out and registered their claim, could not be denied. But then it was argued by counsel, most learned in mining law, that they had done something which they should have omitted to do, or had omitted to do something else which they should have done. Frail human beings as they were, and therefore their claim should be declared to belong to some Ballarat jumper. I had to sit and listen to such like legal logic until it made me sick, and ashamed of my species. Of course, justice was never mentioned. That was out of the question. If law and justice don't agree, so much the worse for justice. Gold was next found at Turton's Creek, which proved one of the richest little gullies ever worked by diggers. It was discovered by some prospectors who followed the tracks which Mr. Turton had cut over the scrubby mountains, and so they gratefully gave his name to the gully. But I never heard that they gave him any of the gold which they found in it. A narrow track from Foster was cut between high walls of impenetrable scrub, and it soon became like a ditch full of mud, deep and dangerous. If the diggers had been assured that they would find heaven at the other end of it, they would never have tried to go, the prospect of eternal happiness having much less attraction for them than the prospect of gold. But the sacred thirst made them tramp bravely through the sloof. The sun and wind never dried the mud, because it was shut in and overshadowed by the dense growth of the bush. All tools and provisions were carried through it on the backs of horses, whose legs soon became caked with mud, and the hair was taken off them as clean as if they had been shaved with a razor. Most of them had a short life, and a hard one. The digging was quite shallow, and the gully was soon rifled off the gold. At this time there was a mining registrar at Foster, as the new diggings at Stockyard Creek were named, and some men, after pegging out their claim at Turton's Creek, went back down the ditch to register them at Foster. 
it was a great mistake. It was neither the time nor the place for legal forms or ceremony. Time was of the essence of the contract, and they wasted the essence. Other and wiser men stepped on to their ground while they were absent, commenced at once to work vigorously, and the original peggers, when they returned, were unable to dislodge them. Peter Wilson pegged out a claim, and then rode away to register it. He returned the next day, and found two men on it, who had already nearly worked it out. "'This claim is mine, mates,' said Peter. "'I pegged it out yesterday, and I have registered it. You will have to come out.' One of the men looked up at Peter and said, "'Oh, your name is Peter, isn't it? I hear you're a fighting man.' Well, you just come down off that bare-legged horse, and I'll kill you in a couple of minutes while I take a spell. It's no use your talking that way. You'll see, I'll have the law on you, and you'll have to pay for it, replied Peter. You can go, Peter, and fetch the law as soon as you like. I don't care a tinker's curse for you or the law. All I want is the profits, and I'm going to have them. This profane outlaw and his mate got the profits, cleared all the gold out of Peter's claim, and took it away with them. It was reported in Melbourne that there was no law or order at Turton's Creek, that the diggers were treating the mining statutes and regulations with contempt, that the gold went to the strong and the weakest went to the wall. Therefore, six of the biggest policemen in Melbourne were selected, stretched out and measured in Russell Street barracks, and were then ordered to proceed to Turton's Creek and vindicate the majesty of the law. They landed from the steamer on the wharf at Port Albert, and, being armed with carbines and revolvers, looked very formidable. They proceeded on their journey in the direction of Foster, and it was afterwards reported that they arrived at Turton's Creek, and finding everybody quiet and peaceable, they came back again, bringing with them neither jumpers nor criminals. It was said, however, that they never went any further than the commencement of the ditch. They would naturally, on viewing it, turn aside and camp to recruit their energies and discuss the situation. Although they were big constables, it did not follow they were big fools. They said the government ought to have asphalted the ditch for them. It was unreasonable to expect men, each six foot four inches in height, carrying arms and accruements, which they were bound by the regulations to keep clean and in good order, to plunge into that river of mud and to spoil all their clothes. Turton's Creek was soon worked out, and before any professional jumpers or lawyers could put their fingers in the pie, the plums were all gone. The gully was prospected from top to bottom, and the hills on both sides were tunnelled, but no more gold, and no reefs were found. There was much speculation by geologists, mining experts, and the old duffers as to the manner in which the gold had contrived to get into the creek, and where it came from, where it went to. The diggers who carried it away in their pockets knew well enough. The diggers dispersed. Some went to Melbourne to enjoy their wealth. Some stayed at Foster to try to get some more. Some died from the extreme enjoyment of riches suddenly acquired, and a few went mad. One of the latter was brought to Palmerston, and remained there a day or two on his way to the Yarra Bend Lunatic Asylum. Having an inborn thirst for facts, I conversed with him from the wooden platform which overlooks the jail yard. 
He was walking to and fro, talking very cheerfully to himself, and to the world in general. He spoke well, and had evidently been well educated, but his ideas were all in pieces, as it were, and lacked connection. He spoke very disrespectfully of men in high places, both in England and the colonies, and remarked the members of Parliament were the greatest rascals on the face of the earth. No man of sound mind would ever use such language as that. Some years afterwards, while I was a collector of customs at Port Albert, I received a letter from Melbourne to the following purport, Yarra Bend Asylum. 188. Strictly private and confidential. Sir, you are hereby ordered to take possession of and detain every vessel arriving at Port Albert. You will immediately proceed on board each of them, and place the broad arrow above the foremast six feet above the deck. You will thus cut off all communication with the British Empire. I may state that I am the lawful heir to the title and estates of a Scottish dukedom, and am deprived of the possession and enjoyment of my rightful station and wealth by the machinations of a band of conspirators, who have found means to detain me in this prison in order to enjoy my patrimony. You will particularly observe that you are to hold no communication whatever with the governor of this colony, as he is the paid agent of the conspirators, and will endeavour to frustrate all efforts to obtain my rights. You will also be most careful to withhold all information from the Duke of Dunsinane, who is a member of the junior branch of my family, and at the head of the conspiracy. You will proceed as soon as possible to enrol a body of men for the purpose of effecting my deliverance by force of arms. As these men will require payment for their services, you will enter the Bank of Victoria at Port Albert and seize all the money you will find there, the amount of which I estimate at £10,000, which will be sufficient for preliminary expenses. You will give, in my name, to the manager of the bank a guarantee in writing for repayment of the money, with current rate of interest added when I recover the dukedom and estates. Be careful to explain to him that you take the money only as a loan, and that will prevent the bank from laying any criminal charge against you. Should anything of the kind be in contemplation, you will be good enough to report progress to me as soon as possible, and I will give you all necessary instructions as to your future proceedings. I may mention that in seeking to obtain my title and estates, I am influenced by no mean or mercenary considerations. My sole desire is to benefit the human race. I have been employing all my leisure hours during the last nine years in perfecting a system of philosophy entirely new and applicable to all times, to all nations, and to all individuals. I have discovered the true foundation for it which, like all great inventions, is so simple that it will surprise the world it was never thought of before. It is this, Posito impossibili, sequitur quidlibet. My philosophy is founded on the firm basis of the impossible. On that you can build anything and everything. My great work is methodical, divided into sections and chapters, perfect in style, and so lucid in argument that he who runs may read and be enlightened. I have counted the words, and they number so far 702,578. 
five years more will be required to complete the work. I shall then cause it to be translated into every language of the world, and shipped at the lowest rate of tonnage for universal distribution gratis. This will ensure its acceptance, and its own beauty and intrinsic merits will secure its adoption by all nations, and the result will be human happiness. It will supersede all the baseless theories of science, religion and morality which have hitherto confounded the human intellect. Extract from my magnum opus We may reasonably suppose that matter is primordially self-existent, and that it imbued itself with the potentiality of life. It therefore produced germs. A pair of germs coalesced and formed a somewhat discordant combination, the movements in which tended towards divergence. They attracted and enclosed other atoms, and, progressing through sleep and wakefulness, at last arrived at complete satisfaction, or perfect harmonic combination. This harmonic combination is death. We may say then, in brief, that growth is simply discordant currents progressing towards harmony. One question may be briefly noticed. It has been asked, when did life first appear on the earth? We shall understand now that the question is unnecessary. Life first appeared on the earth when the earth first appeared as an unsatisfied atom seeking combination. The question is rather, when did the inanimate first appear? It appeared when the first harmonic combination was effected. The earth is indeed to be considered as having grown up through the life that is inherent in it. Man is the most concentrated and differentiated outgrowth of that life. Mankind is, so to speak, the brain of the earth, and is progressing towards the conscious guidance of all its processes. Dunsinane it was not clear on what ground this noble duke based his authority over me, but I had been so long accustomed to fulfil the behests of lunatics of low degree that I was able to receive those of an afflicted lord with perfect equanimity. But, as I could not see that my obedience would be rewarded with anything except death or pentridge, I refrained from action. I did not place the broad arrow abuffed off anything or anybody nor did I make a levy on the cash in the Bank of Victoria. End of section 33